Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, March 21st, and we're talking Graco. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Senior Motley Fool Analyst John Rotanti of iSky. How you doing, John? I'm doing good, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, John, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Before we dive into Graco, which is the company we're discussing today, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do at The Fool and a little bit about what your investing style and strategy is. Awesome. So, I'm a senior analyst at The Motley Fool on the investing team. I've been here for almost five years. And I basically just try to cover as many high-quality, growing companies that I can handle. And so, right now, that's about 30 companies. And um, in general, I look for companies that have a strong balance sheet uh, and that generate high returns on invested capital and that I think can generate high returns on future capital and that have opportunities to reinvest in future growth uh, at high returns, um, and so and a company that's that's growing organically and that I think can generate earnings per share and free cash flow per share of about uh, 10% or more going forward. And that's basically what I look for. Awesome. And we're going to talk about a company today that really seems to check a lot of those boxes, and that's Graco. I'll tell you, John, when I heard the name Graco, the first thing I thought about was kind of high chairs and strollers. This is not that Graco. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what Graco does and maybe just how you came across this company in the first place? You know, that high, tr- high chair and stroller company must have a fantastic brand because uh, I mentioned this company to Buck Hartzell as well, another member of our investing team, and he asked me the same question. Is that the company that makes strollers? So, um, I may have to look into that one. But uh, this Graco is a, it's a world-class business. So, it's, um, it was founded in 1926 by the Gray Brothers. It's headquartered in Minnesota. And so it's it's nearly a hundred years old. It's ninety three years old, and ever since day one, this company has focused on the liquids niche. So they make products. Graco makes products that uh, mix, meter, dispense, and spray liquids and other uh, materials such as foams, epoxies, adhesives, um, and things like that. Right. So, I mean, the the quote they have, I believe it's from their 10K, they say, we pump the peanut butter into your jar and the oil into your car. We glue the soles of your shoes, the glass in your windows, pump the ink onto your bills, spray the finish on your vehicle, coatings on your pills, the paint on your house, texture on your walls. Really, anything needs to get painted, coated, sprayed. Graco is right there uh, to help these companies uh, do that. Uh, you know, mo- most of their business comes from industrial business. They also sell to contractors, things like that. I believe their largest customer uh, is um, uh, Sherwin Williams Paints. I believe over ten percent of their revenue. So, uh, you know, they're, they're really, really all over the place, and they've really, really driven significant returns over the past twenty-five years. Uh, the cumulative total shareholder return for Graco has been six thousand two hundred and forty-five percent versus the S and P's four hundred and thirty-three percent. Which obviously incredible return over the past twenty five years, John. Do you want to talk about, you know, from a financial perspective, how Graco has driven those returns over the past couple of decades? Sure. So um, it's just like I said, this is a world class business. It's a super high quality, 
growing business. One of the most amazing things about this company is that it's 93 years old and it's still growing at the rates that it are, which we'll get into. And, um, you know, crushing the market like the numbers that you just provided, it over 6,000% total shareholder return compared to the S&P, which over the time frame did 430 or something, and the Dow Jones, which did nearly 600%. But still, that's, um, you know, nowhere close to the 6,000% returns Graco has provided shareholders. And so, you know, like you said, Graco is an industrial business, but it touches consumers in so many ways. And it sells these mission critical products that 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 companies across all verticals need to use. If if a company is using liquids uh, or adhesives or foam in any way, there's very likely a Graco product there because Graco has either the leading market share or top three market share in every niche that it serves. Uh, so you mentioned Sherwin Williams. I'll, I'll talk about a few of the products and then and then its financial profile. Maybe its most popular product or the product that consumers may be familiar with the most are its spray painters. Um, these, these spray guns that are used to paint homes inside and out um, instead of using a brush or a roller. Um, obviously, much more efficient, saves on waste, um, gets the job done quicker. So those products... Um, these contractor products, these spray, these spray paint guns can be bought through retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's. Most of its products, however, are, are, are large and pricier industrial products that are worked into a company's industrial process or its assembly line, if you will. And once that product is in that assembly line, it's really not going anywhere for, for two main reasons. One is that Graco's Brand is known for quality, customer service, reliability, and quick delivery of parts when necessary. And two, downtime for um, a factory is is really not good because um, then the whole the whole assembly line shuts down, and that factory can't leverage its fixed costs. So downtime is really lost money. And so once a Graco product is in the is is in that industrial process, it stays there. So the very high switching cost, high barriers to entry. So what Graco does is um, it sells these products, and over time, so so a lot of these liquids that um, are are in these products are abrasive or corrosive in some way, and so over time, uh, any part of that product, any part of that hardware that touches the abrasive materials ends up wearing down and needs to be replaced. So about 40% of Graco's total revenue comes from these aftermarket replacement parts. So 40% of its, of its revenue enterprise-wide is recurring, which gives a degree of predictability to the business. Um, these parts that need to be replaced, think, so we talked about these these spray these spray painters. The tip of that spray gun, um, where the paint comes out, um, will eventually get gummed up, um, just because you know paint eventually eventually clogs it up. But these these spray these spray guns um, give precise ratio control, precise amount of paint and pattern. And so when that happens, that tip needs to be replaced. Other parts that need to be replaced are the pumps the filters that filter these liquids, the O-rings and other seals that um, keep 
liquids out from other parts of the product. So there's a nice recurring component, uh, component to the business model. 40% of revenue is recurring. Another thing that I really like is that Graco has pricing power. It, it, it has historically been able to increase prices between 1.5% and 2% every single year. So right there, you have 2% growth coming just from pricing. Um, right. Well, it's it, able to, uh-huh. Yeah, and it just, it's really powerful, this ongoing relationship they can maintain with their customers. You know, these big industrial companies, it's not that you just sell this machine and the transaction is over. You know, it's a key cog in their production facilities, so you can't have it go go down. You're constantly, you know, servicing these machines and maintaining those relationships. And the other number that I thought was significant is, you know, over half of their revenue comes from products that sell zero or one unit per day. So the volume's not super high, so that doesn't incentivize other competition to come in. And then as well, yeah, you know, you're really driving a lot of revenue not from this initial sale, but from these these resale of parts, which is really powerful. And and you mentioned they're in this niche, they have this large scale, they have these really important relationships with their customers. All that builds together to create their moat, like what you were talking about with pricing power. Uh, you want to talk some about their operating leverage and just I mean, they've really been able to drive a lot of value uh, by finding their niche and really building a moat around it. Exactly right, Nick. The it's niche Graco's niche strategy. Um, really is 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 key to its success. So I mean, how many companies can you name? I can't name one that wants to compete with Graco when they're competing to sell one or zero products per day. For so fifty percent of Graco's revenue, fit like you mentioned, fifty percent comes from products that it ships either zero or one per day. Um, so first of all. Very few companies want to go after one or zero per day. Second of all, those uh, you know new entrants they just don't have the scale to compete with Graco. Graco has built over decades um, manufacturing prowess and manufacturing efficiencies and really manufacturing expertise that allows them to be highly efficient and generate you know very high returns on capital at very low volumes. For their industrial business, to counter that, so this is there's a nice balancing act here. Graco's contractor business that's more um, has has higher in inventory turns, so they sell more product there. So there's a nice balance, but like you said, 50% of their revenues are coming from extremely niche products. So there's not a lot of competition. Graco does have competitors, but um, you know over time it has built. A massive moat based on its brand known for quality, reliability, timely delivery, and A-plus customer service. They've actually trademarked that, A-plus customer service, because it's so, it's so um, integral to their strategy and to their success. Like I said, they have um, global scale from a distribution and cost standpoint. They've got this manufacturing, these manufacturing efficiencies are vertically integrated. They have, they're also a very metric-driven organization. Two of those metrics, one I've mentioned a lot is return on invested capital. Another one is, is a metric that they came up with called cost to produce. And basically, they, they have every single factory that they own. Like I said, they're vertically integrated. They, they ask that factory to see if they can produce the same exact basket of goods as they did in the prior year with zero cost increased. So that's called cost to produce. Um, and then when you look at it, they have a an installed base that's almost 100 years old. 
and 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 you look at the recurring revenue that they're selling in, and you look in their pricing power, it all just comes together to create this this fantastic moat. Right. I mean, you hear, uh, you know, Warren Buffett has this quote where he says, "Hey, if you gave me a hundred million dollars and said disrupt Coca-Cola, I couldn't go do it." This feels like one of those companies where you have these hundred-year-long relationships. That there's not a huge market to take away, and and for somebody to do that would require so much capital expenditure up front to disrupt them. It just wouldn't make rational sense. And then, two, you know, I saw a stat that they're they're spending far above what their peer group does on R and D. So when it comes to staying a step ahead of the competition from a technological point of view, they're making the right allocations of capital to do that. So that they really seem to be. Um, in a strong position. The other thing I want to call out too is their management is has been there for a really long time. So I mean, the CEO has been there since 1989. The CFO has been there since 95. Uh, the VP of Operations has been there since 93. So everybody in a leadership position has been there. You know, pushing three decades, really committed to this business. You know, when you look at that, you know, a management that that's really that ingrained, uh, you know, in the company over over a long period of time. What does that tell to you as an investor? Is that an exciting thing to see? It's very exciting for me. Like you said, this is an extremely tenured, extremely experienced management team. Um, CEO's been there for 30 years. He's been the CEO for 12 years. We can talk a little bit about more about his fantastic track record. But um, not only is this management team ingrained in Graco, but Graco's culture, this metric-driven culture, is ingrained in this management team. And so three of those metrics that are just... Uh, you know, quintessential to Graco, we talked about this cost to produce metric, which gives them their manufacturing efficiencies. We've talked about ROIC, return on invested capital. They benchmark every single investing decision on ROIC, whether it's a headcount addition, whether it's R&D, whether it's capital expenditures, or whether it's an acquisition. And that's the main reason why Graco does make some acquisitions on a fairly regular basis um, to supplement their organic growth. But unlike most companies that make acquisitions, Graco's returns on invested capital are not being diluted. They're not paying too much. In fact, over the last three years, Graco's returns have actually increased. And then that third metric that is key to this culture you mentioned is research and development, or what they call new product spend, new product development spend. They spend more than their comp- competition. A um, couple other interesting facts there, their sales growth is always uh, pretty much faster than their growth in research and development spending. So it's paying off. Over a cycle, I think about 2% of their sales growth comes from new product development. Perhaps most impressively, to demonstrate their commitment and this culture to research and development, to investing in long-term growth, in 2009, in the depths of the Great Recession, um, the global financial crisis, their sales fell 29%. They actually increased research and development spending in 2009. So they're just completely committed to investing in long-term growth and, get, and, and investing in products that their, com- that their customers need, really. Yeah, I just I was just going to say to to combine that with what we've described structurally as their mode and being in the business that they operate in to also have that commitment from a capital allocation point of view and you know advancing R and D it really just augments the power of their mode even more that their management is navigating the ship in that type of way. It's really exciting to see. It's an amazing management team. So so Pat McHale, he's fifty seven years old. He's been with the company for thirty years. He's been CEO for 12 years. He became CEO in 2007, June of 2007, I believe. So before the global financial crisis. 
um, when he took over as CEO, the company had a moat. It was, it was already a great company, but it wasn't growing as fast as it could have. And so Mikhail came in and he accelerated growth by doing several things. Uh, investing, increasing investments in new product development. So this culture around R&D. Personally overseeing improving product quality. Personally overseeing this culture around customer service. They actually put an email, the CEO link on their website, which is still up. And to this day, uh, Pat McHale feels every single one of those emails himself without a go-between. They patented this A-plus customer service um, or they trademarked it, I'm sorry, this A-plus customer service mantra that they have. Um, and then he, he also increased acquisitions to expand into new products, new niches, uh, new, and new geographies, basically. Uh, he's been fantastic. I mentioned that the company's sales fell 29% in 2009. Let me put a little perspective around that. So 2009 was the depths of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Graco's sales have going back to 1998 have only fallen in three other years. So they fell in 1991 when there was a recession. They only fell 3%. They fell in 2001 when the dot-com bubble bursted. So a big recession, and they only fell, I think, 5%. In 2008, the start of the global financial crisis, Graco's sales only fell 3%. So going back to 1998, which is just as far back as, as I've looked, um, their sales have only fallen in four years. In 2009, when their sales fell 29%, they still generated positive net income. So gap earnings, basically. They still generated positive operating cash flow and positive free cash flow. In that year, they paid off $100 million worth of debt, and they increased their dividend. So that just speaks to the financial resiliency and strength of this business. So sales were down in 2009. They rebounded in 2010. I think they grew twenty over 20%. In 2011, um, I think they grew over 20%. Or, 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 or over 10%. So they rebounded extremely nice, nicely coming out of the Great Recession. So basically, they were able to, like we said, maintain investment in, pro- in new product development when, when a lot of competitors couldn't. So coming out of the down cycle, they took market share and their sales exploded. So this is just, it's a company with extremely good uh, financials. I think they're, if you look over the past five years, so 2014 through year end 2018, their five year average free cash flow margin is 17%. Their five year average return on assets is 15%. Their five year average return on invested capital is 21%. And their five year average return on equity is 37%. Even more impressive is that those numbers are increasing. So their 2018 numbers were higher. In each of those categories, free cash flow margin, return on assets, return on capital, and return on equity, their 2018 numbers were higher than their five-year averages. Um, this company also has an extremely strong balance sheet. It has modest net debt of $150 million. That's down from net debt of $350 million in 2015. They generate over $300 million a year in free cash flow, so they could pay off their net debt in, in a half a year if they wanted to. Their interest coverage ratio of 30. 
um, is the highest in in since 2011, I believe. So just really a company that is firing on all cylinders right now, Nick. Right. I mean, as you said, I mean, they've been able to withstand downturns in the in the economy, which for these industrial companies is something that's concerning. Particularly now, we have tariffs, and you know, we're starting to see that the auto and housing markets maybe start to turn over. But management has really been been strong, saying we still we still expect. Uh, you know our, our increases in pricing to more than be able to offset any headwinds we see from those sorts of issues. They have a strong dividend. They've increased over 19 straight years, and they're buying back stock. Um, you know, when you look at the opportunities for this company going forward, uh, you know, is it full, st- full speed ahead? I mean, where are the opportunities for this company to continue to grow? I think so, Nick. So, so um, I'll, I'll get to the growth opportunities, but you mentioned um, industrial recessions. So. I'd like to separate broader economic recessions, broader economic downturns that sort of hit all industries from an industrial-specific recession. So, in those four years that I mentioned that Graco's sales fell, 1991, 2001, and then 2008 and 2009, those were broad recessions. Those were in those were you know broad economic downturns, sort of hitting all industries. But when there have been sort of sector-specific manufacturing recessions um, that hit a lot of industrial companies, Graco grows right through them. So, as an example, in most recently, there was a significant industrial recession in 2015 and 2016 brought on by um, really an oil shock. So, oil, oil prices fell almost out of nowhere. So we had an oil shock, oil and, and natural gas shock. Um, also, Brazil was going through the worst recession they had experienced in a hundred years. Um, China's industrial output output was slowing, and then industrial companies were experiencing very strong uh, FX or foreign exchange headwinds. So those sort of three or four factors really took a toll on the on the industrial specific companies, and I cover a lot of them. And what happened was their sales fell, and and earnings fell faster because of negative operating leverage. Uh, Graco grew grew right through that. In 2015, its sales were up three or four percent. In 2016, its sales were up, I think, four or five percent. So its growth slowed, but it still grew right through it. So it really. Um, it's got a it's got a great track record there. So going forward, I think we can actually sort of like model out its revenue on this podcast. So let's assume that um, global GDP grows at three percent. That's three percent right there. Let's assume Graco takes one percent market share over time. That's four percent long-term revenue growth. Let's add in two percent from pricing. That's six percent organic revenue growth right there. Um, and then I think about a point will come from acquisitions over time. So I think over the long term, let's say the next five to seven years, Graco can grow its revenue at around a 7% CAGR with 6% of that being organic. Then we um, one, one metric we didn't talk about was its operating leverage. So this company, because it has a fixed cost business model, it owns its manufacturing and its plants, it's vertically integrated. If it, the more sales volume, organic sales volume, it can drive through those factories, the more it can leverage its fixed cost. 
So over time, Graco has very strong operating leverage and it generates incremental operating margins of about 35 to 40%. So that just means that earnings grow a little faster than revenue. So if we have rev- if I think revenue can grow about 7%, I think there will be some margin improvement, which can bring, let's say, net income growth to 8 or 9%. And then when you add in, historically, the company buys back or reduces its share count by about 2% annually. You can get earnings per share and free cash flow per share of at least 10% over the long term. Management is actually shooting for 12% long-term earnings per share growth. Um, So I'm being really conservative with my minimum of 10% number. But, you know, it's in that ballpark. I think this company can grow revenue at a high single-digit CAGR or, excuse me, or compounded annual growth rate. And I think it can grow earnings per share and free cash flow per share, which is ultimately what we're after, by at least 10% and very likely 12% over the long term. Yeah, John, I, I think today, just looking at the moat that Graco has, what its management's been able to do, its history of riding through recessions, we really painted a, a really powerful picture of you know where, where this business lies and its opportunities to just continue moving forward. What, though, would have to occur for this thesis not to play out the way we've described today? Like, What outside facts would have to come into play to disrupt Graco's growth story and its trajectory that it's on today? Sure. So, there's a, a couple probably. So, I, I just gave you my estimates, rough estimates over the next five to seven years. If during that time frame we do have a broad economic downturn, um, you know, that in, in which sales fall uh, three or four or five percent in one year, that could maybe lower my numbers a little bit over that five to seven year time frame. So, just a broad economic downturn. Um, to counter that, though, like I said, uh, Graco has the f- has the free cash flow and the balance sheet to really use a downturn to its advantage. What do I mean by that? I mean that um, during a downturn, a company like Graco can manage its inventories, manage its working capital, still generate very very strong free cash flows, and during a downturn, use those free cash flows to its advantage by either buying back cheap stock or making acquisitions, or investing heavily in new product development and gaining share coming out of the downturn. So, whereas a downturn would affect numbers over the next five years somewhat, it could also strengthen, believe it or not, Graco's long-term growth profile if it really takes advantage of the downturn and invests at the, at the bottom of the downturn when a lot of other companies can't. That's, so, that's one thing. You know, you just... They do sell into cyclical markets and markets, and so an, a broad economic downturn would would hurt the stock for sure in the short term. Another thing is, you said Sherwin Williams is a ten percent customer. Honestly, um, over dependence on a on a single customer or supplier is is something I look for in my risk analysis. I'm not really worried about that here uh, because Graco makes the best products. And they have a great long-term relationship with Sherwin-Williams. And there's not a whole lot of competitors in the spray paint gun space. I mean, there's Wagner, there's a few others. But, but Graco's is, is, based on the research I've done, uh, they make the highest quality, most reliable products. And so I'm not worried about that Sherwin-Williams um, relationship. If I'm wrong about that, 
um, you know, that that could dent their their revenue in the long term, uh, in the short term. I'm sorry, you know, if they have to, if they for some reason lose some of that Sherwin Williams business, but I think they would be able to replace it. So that's something else. Um, Graco makes acquisitions, but they don't overpay. Like I said, they benchmark every single investing decision that they make on return on invested capital. If you look at their fourth quarter 2018 earnings call, their most recent earnings call, one of the analysts asked Pat McHale, Graco's CEO, how he would characterize the current M&A environment or mergers and acquisitions environment. He gave a one-sentence answer, and he said, I think it's expensive. Um, so he's not going to overpay. They just they, it, they don't do it. He did over. He made a mistake, and he outright admitted it in 2015 or 16. He bought some oil and gas assets um, when at, kind of at the top of the market when oil prices were really high, and they had to write those down. Um, they don't often make mistakes. That was one. They admitted it, and I think they learned from it. Um, but you know, if they get overly aggressive for some reason, and and bite off more than they can chew and, and overpay for an acquisition, that could hurt their returns. Once again, I don't see that happening. Um, you know, and then, you know, McHale is a great CEO. Um, at He's been with the company for 30 years. At some point, he's going to want to retire. Uh, I hope it's not anytime soon, but at some point he will. I'm not too concerned just because, like I said, and or like you said, it's an extremely tenured management team. And that management team has lives and breathes the Graco way of doing things. And what I mean by that is, is, is they're metric driven. They have a playbook. They manage and measure everything they do by metrics. And I just don't see the next CEO veering outside of that playbook. I do think the next CEO will be appointed from someone inside the company. And I think they're going to stick to the playbook. So, you know, there, there's things that on the horizon, on the short term, maybe. Uh, an economic downturn, but I'm just not too concerned right now. Yeah, John, I, I think I think when you can list the main risks uh, to the company as those standard risks that every company has to list on their 10K, so every company has to say, "Oh, a recession would really hurt us," or if our CEO resigned abruptly, or any of those sorts of things. None of Ray, I mean, Graco's advantages are very, very unique and particular to their business. The risks to this business are the same risks that you face with every company. So I, I, I think it, the moat that they have, the culture they have through their management, their ability to raise prices over time, really, I think is really powerful and definitely a company that I think our listeners should be adding to their watch lists. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Any last things you want to say to our listeners before we hit the road? Nick, just thanks for having me, and I uh, I would love to come back soon. Yeah, thanks so much. Enjoyed having you on so much, and I look forward to having you on again soon. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For John Rotanti, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!